0: As Ken said, Robert read the text, choir sang it, and and now I get to to preach it. It's almost like uh, Tim McGraw's song, Southern Voice. Uh, Dale Earnhardt drove it, Jack Daniels drank it, and Billy Graham saved it. So here we are. On that note, today we conclude our time in Romans chapters 9 through 11. That wasn't in my notes, that just came to mind you should be glad I have notes. (laughs) Of course, missions conference is next weekend. I'm actually going to be out of the pulpit uh, the following Sunday as well. You get the the dynamic father-son duo of Ronnie and Seth the following Sunday. I've got to go up to Grand Rapids for a, a preaching conference there. And I'm also on a book deadline. My book is due March 1st. So if you don't see me this week, it's uh, a very good reason I will be holed away trying to finish the last chapter and get everything formatted for that. I appreciate your prayers for that as uh, as I would like to finish that on time. We're going to come back uh, in in March to an in-between series, as we often do. Uh, that'll take us to middle of April to Easter. And I'm not exactly sure yet what that's going to be. I'm going to use some of that time traveling to, to think about it. But after Easter, we'll come back to... The last section of Romans, which is chapters 12 through 16, where Romans gets very practical in view of these mercies of God in the first 11 chapters, now here's what we do. Here's our response of worship, and that's what worship is. Worship is a response to God that encompasses all of life, and that'll take us through the summer, so that'll be a little bit uh, longer section as we go through chapters 12 through 16, but today we conclude chapter 11 here in this text, this passage in which we have statements that have long been cherished by Christians, like verse 33, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. This is just pure praise. We have these cherished statements like this in this passage, but we also have confusing statements in this passage, confusing statements like the statement right above it, verse 32, For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. On up to verse 26, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. What does all mean? Or for a moment here, let me remind you of when we saw similar language in Romans back in chapter 5. You can turn there with me if you like. I'm going to look for a moment. Keep a finger in chapter 11. Look back at chapter 5 because we talked about this back when we were in chapters 4 and 5. It was its own series. Chapter 5, verse 18 Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. The alls here in chapter 5 as well as in chapter 11, they're comprehensive. I don't know any other way to take all than all. That said, it is possible to press a word like all. All. Uh, Universalism would, for instance, do that. The belief that God will save everyone in the end is what we mean when we say universalism. You can can hear the definition of it within uh, universal. Universalism is the belief that God is going to have mercy on everyone in the end. If there is a place of judgment, according to the universalist, it will be emptied. It's a temporary holding cell. All people get in. That's the grace and mercy of God and his largesse. Uh, Verse 32 here in chapter 11 uh, is something of a proof text for those who try to make universalism work, and we talked about this when we were back in chapter 5. In fact, just to kind of toggle between chapter 5 and chapter 11 for one more moment. Chapter 5, verse 18, I just read to you, chapter 5, verse 19, after the alls in chapter 5, verse 18, then in chapter 5, verse 19, for as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now go back to chapter 11. God could get all if he chose to because his provision through Jesus is sufficient for all, but all is followed by many in the text of Romans 5, which means the word "all is not being pressed for all it's worth. What's going on with this word "all in Romans chapter 5, we were in last year, but now seeing it again here in chapter 11, as Robert read, verse 26, verse 32, you get this reference to, to all. How can you have a comprehensive all in these passages? And God's elective purposes, which draws the circle in tighter. We have both. Here is a tension. Now, universalism doesn't abide that tension. And that's a temptation in this passage to say, well, I like what verse 32 is saying. That seems really compassionate. And so I'm going to take the position that God's going to save all. And you put verse 26 with that for Israel as well. Universalism is a temptation in this passage. And you could say to justify it, well, see, God can do anything he wants. And yes, that's very true. But the question is, does he act contrary to what he's revealed in many other places in scripture? I I was uh, thinking on this and and doing some reading, actually last night uh, was Uh, thinking about how easy it is to go into extremes and I found this article last night I wasn't looking for it it it, uh, was linked in something that I was otherwise reading and the uh, I thought it was helpful and I'll share from it even though it's it's still fresh on my mind having just read it last night but the author a guy named Glenn Packiam Glenn is a uh, pastor at New Life Church in Colorado Springs he noticed as he was reading the Narnia stories to his little boy he noticed a piece of brilliance in, in Lewis that um, particularly how he revisits a statement he makes in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe that Aslan is not a tame lion. Those of you who are familiar with Narnia remember that, uh, Aslan's not a tame lion. But then in the last book, Narnia is a, is a seven-volume series, in the last story called The Last Battle, there's two references moving back to that. Let me tell you how he writes about it and explain why it's pertinent here. When Aslan is called not a tame lion, this just is an example, that is showing that his goodness does not exclude his wildness, that not being a tame lion means, in essence, by allegory, that God can do whatever he pleases. And there's two examples, though, uh, of when you get to the end of the Narnia stories where that phrase Aslan is not a tame lion. Has now been abused, and Lewis goes back. Uh, there's a unicorn in the last battle. Again, this is Narnia, who uses the phrase "Aslan's not a tame lion" to suggest, back in the in the in the Narnian context, when Aslan communicates, he always communicates first through the stars, sending signs. And in the absence, as Aslan has delayed his return to Narnia, in the absence of the stars giving signs, a unicorn suggests, well, maybe Aslan is acting in a new way. Maybe he's breaking with the past. Maybe he no longer reveals himself through the stars as he had always. And after all, the unicorn says, Aslan made the stars, and he's not a tame lion, we know, so he can do whatever he wants. And then you also have in the same story, a few chapters later, you have an ape... (laughs) who cons a donkey into acting like Aslan. He puts this uh, dead lion skin on the donkey and parades the donkey at a distance before the Narnians and says, Aslan has appointed me, and here he is, he's appointed me, this ape, to rule you and you're going to uh, be in my service. And when the Narnians protest, uh, uh, slavery doesn't seem to be part of Aslan's character. Uh, The ape says, well, you don't really know what freedom is. And the bottom line is uh, you ought not to question Aslan because Aslan's not a tame lion. Interesting. Glenn Packiam, reading this to my son last night, both misuses of the tame lion phrase struck me as a rebuke to two tendencies in our own day, though I suspect there were versions of it in Lewis's day as well. The first suggests that God's wildness is grounds for justifying a break with God's revealed ways. God's free and therefore does not have to act the way he's always acted. This is very near the argument used by progressive Christians, he puts that in quotes, when they want to move beyond the moral vision of the New Testament. Well, yes, the Bible has some things to say firmly about sexuality, they say, but the spirit blows where it pleases. God has moved on. No doubt you've heard some version of this. The second misuse of the phrase emphasizes God's sovereignty to be so absolute that our definitions have to change. Freedom is not what we think freedom is, good is not what we think good is. He says of course there's some truth in that but the danger comes in absolutizing the otherness of God to the effect of erasing any known point of reference. Language itself becomes meaningless. God is beyond our control and therefore he can act in ways that are out of character in our eyes. He says this resembles some versions of hyper-Calvinism I've heard where God is so far removed from us, so other from us, that he can think cancer or some horrible thing is good even though we know it isn't. God can do things that are out of character because we don't really understand his character anyway. He says, both are misapplications and therefore abuses of the notion of who God is. One stresses God's freedom, the other God's otherness. One allows God to break from his ways in the past, the other from God's character as we know it. Both undermine the self-revelation of God. It's true, God cannot be fully known by humans, but if knowledge of God is not possible, then God's attempt to reveal himself is in vain. Surely the self-giving of God in what he's revealed and incarnation and in Jesus Christ God becoming flesh he says this helps us actually know God no he's not tame but his wildness does not mean we cannot know him through his already revealed ways the old testament is particularly clear in showing that God reveals who he is by what he does and God's wildness does not mean that we do not know the essence of his character This is why Paul could work out a coherent theology of grace to stitch old and new covenants together and show how Jews and Gentiles belong to one another, yet still warn of the judgment that comes from rejecting his grace. In short, God's wildness cannot be used against him. He's still good, and he's shown us what that goodness looks like. Now, I used a lot there from this pastor. I don't normally use so much in a quotation, but I think it's good to... Keep in mind what he's getting at in a passage like this one that we're in. Universalism is a temptation in this passage. You could say, you know, well, like I said earlier, God can do whatever he wants. If he wants to bring all in that he's gonna bring all in. And while that's true, he would be acting contrary to what he's revealed in other places in scripture. You don't pit scriptures against one another. You respect the tension. And the way we've understood this tension in Romans and the outworking of God's mercy is that God's mercy on all is his provision of salvation through Christ for all who believe in Christ. And his provision is sufficient for all, even though God works it out, particularly his elective purposes for those who will receive his mercy by taking Jesus' righteousness in place of our unrighteousness and self-righteousness both. That's the only way to get where God is, by believing. And yet, we don't get there without God leading him, uh, us himself to it. It's both and, not one or the other. We talked about this in throughout uh, places in Romans. Uh, each emphasis on God's elective purposes, when you track this through Romans, every instance of God's elective purposes is set in tension with the idea of mercy for all. Don't take one and leave out the other. God is unbelievably merciful Not just to Jews, the the people he started with, but also to, to Gentiles. And not in a way that puts Gentiles in place of Jews, but a way that brings Gentiles in on Jewish blessings. That's what he's been communicating through chapters 9 through 11 here. Blessings that Jews are for now on the outside looking into due to widespread rejection of Jesus, the one God sent them. But that's not permanent in the case of the Jews. Paul is teaching in these chapters, and if you have uh, Jewish friends, this is a very hopeful text, while at the same time it's an honest text. Why do we need to get this? Why does Paul spend three chapters? And I'll show you later on, chapter 15, he comes back to the same idea. Why does he spend so much ink on this particular uh, Jew-Gentile kind of, of dynamic? Well, without an emphasis on the elective purposes of God, our tendency is to put God in our debt. Our tendency is to believe that uh, God, uh, we came in on this mercy ourselves, that this this is, this is or originates with us. Hope for ethnic Jews coming to Christ at some point in the future as God has determined this, this is also important in this context, lest we practice a kind of superiority over Jewish unbelievers in Jesus as if they are locked into unbelief. No one is impossible for God. No one. And so he says in verse 28 here, looking at chapter 11 now, verse 28, as regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake. And now that pains him to write that. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. And therefore... Back up to verse 25, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. Verse 25, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And this will lead him to say over in chapter 12, we'll come to this in a few weeks, chapter 12, verse 3, for by the grace given to me, look at chapter 12, verse 3, by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. What's our measure of faith as Gentiles? Just putting it in this dynamic that he's working in in chapters 9 through 11. That we've been brought in on something that did not originate with us and does not orbit us. Here we are today worshiping Israel's God. Here we are enjoying grace and mercy that was intended for them. Streaming as it were to us. I was thinking this week about how to illustrate this. I really uh, was kind of laboring over, boy, this, this, this passage has to have a picture somehow. And, and I thought of streaming services. Uh, it's like Israel has experienced a, a service interruption. When he says there in, in, in verse 25, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Yeah, we all know what streaming services are. You know, I, I had a... Um, at satellite TV for uh, a time, and whenever there was a storm, uh, the broadcast would go dark. Some of you have got this; you you know the same uh, kind of thing. And when that happened, a message would appear on the television screen that would uh, say, "I was experiencing either partial or full signal loss," with instructions on what to do to try to get it back. That, in a picture, is what's happened in. Israel, Verse 25, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. The gospel is like a streaming service. A streaming service in that we Gentiles are for now getting the full signal. We're getting to worship Israel's God by way of Israel's Messiah while Israel experiences a partial signal loss. That doesn't mean individual Jewish people don't experience salvation. Many do but far fewer than Gentiles. And considering Israel, ethnic Jews, history with God, that's really saying something. We're the barbarians. Don't forget that. Remember, Scripture says there are two ethnicities. There's Jews and everybody else. And Gentiles are everybody else, to put it in the Memphis terminology of of how we use that, our beloved Grizzlies. It's Grizzlies versus everybody else, you know. When Gentiles believe in Jesus, what happens is we become spiritual inheritors of Abraham through Isaac and Jacob. And this is something that uh, Paul wants us to square with in these passages. So in this passage here, there's things that wash our heart, there's things that make us praise God for his mercy, but there's also things in this passage that make us kind of scratch our head and say, well, well, how and when, and what will this look like when it does? This concluding passage in chapter 11, I'm going to put under two headings, just familiar to us as we usually go through this, sort of become my thing, I guess, to to use two uh, points, two headings. But the headings are streaming and dreaming. And I'm not trying to be cute in uh, in putting it in a a rhyme. I'm almost a little embarrassed that I put it that way, to be uh, honest with you. But what we have in verses 25 through 32 can be pictured by streaming the gospel is full signal to the gentiles doesn't mean every gentile will be saved or is saved but gentiles have a full signal for out, for now whereas israel has a partial one they stumble over jesus as the one sent from god but jesus is is vital there's no other way in but through jesus and by dreaming verses 33 to 36 when we talk about dreaming, we're, we're really talking about what we really want. I mean, it might be a reference to what we saw in our sleep last night, but usually if, if I say to you, this is my dream, you know, I'm not talking about what I saw in my sleep last night, I'm talking about what I really want, either for myself or for those that, that I love. Now, when you read verses 33 to 36, Verse 33, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how excrutable his ways. Both sentences punctuated with an exclamation point. And then he quotes, for who has known the mind of the Lord? Who's been his counselor? Who's given a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory and forever. Amen. When I read that, I think of Isaiah 40. Just listen to this from Isaiah 40. This is the first five verses of Isaiah 40. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned. She has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill made low, and the uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. That's beautiful. And it's in reference both to Jews and Gentiles. Isaiah was a prophet who often saw Gentiles coming in at some future point coming in on what uh, God had revealed and given to Jews. So Isaiah, chapter 40, verse 2. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Cry to her that she's received from the Lord's hand, double for all her sins. And verse 5. The glory shall be of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, out from Israel to the Gentiles, for the word of the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This is the dream the church is to dream. This is the desire the church is to cultivate in one another. The glory of the Lord revealed such that all unbelief, all unrighteousness and self-righteousness that results from unbelief, all unbelief is finally and fully swallowed up by Jesus' righteousness. All flesh shall see this in some way, Isaiah said, and Paul echoes Isaiah here. It was the dream of the prophets. It was the dream of the apostles after them. And it's the dream of the church as well to see the day when the eternal glory of God covers the earth unfiltered and everything happens for all as it is supposed to. few more thoughts about each one of these headings and then we're done. First, Streaming. Go back to streaming, the heading under which we take verses 25 to 32 here. I've given you the picture already. We know what it is to stream movies and music. If you don't know what it is, ask your grandchild. They'll be uh, glad to tell you what that is. We subscribe to streaming services. I don't have have satellite TV anymore. I have Internet TV. Uh, That's streaming. Uh, Think of the gospel as a streaming service with this huge bandwidth. And we got a gift subscription. We never get a bill. I took us back to Romans 5 earlier. Let me take you ahead in this idea of streaming. Let me take you ahead to Romans 15. Romans 15, verses 14 through 21. I'll read it to you. Romans 15, verse 14. I have reason to be proud of my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I've always struggled to say that word, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. Class, who is that? That's the Gentiles. He makes much of his ministry to the Gentiles. He's a Jewish guy doing this. Sounds kind of familiar, chapter 15, to where we've been these weeks in chapters 9 through 11. Right there in verse 21 in chapter 15, he's quoting Isaiah. He quotes Isaiah a lot. Why does he quote Isaiah so much? All through Romans, he quotes Isaiah a lot. Isaiah was the prophet who often spoke about Gentiles coming in, Gentiles streaming into Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Isaiah chapter 60 is the vision of the new Jerusalem and the kings of the earth bring their wealth into it. The Gentiles, Isaiah said, are going to come in on what Jews have been on for centuries before we had. Israel's unbelief and unfaithfulness is well documented by prophets like Isaiah, but so would ours be if it was us in their place, if God had started with Gentiles and moved Israel. The Gentiles are just like Israel, only more so. Those who have never been told of him will see. Those who have never heard will understand. We got full signal in the gospel, not because we deserved it and not because we do better with it, but because God is more merciful than anyone realizes. That's what the prophets were calling the people back to because the people under the old covenant they, they lost sight of how merciful God was, both to them and to those beyond them, that, that, that those beyond them were, were always part of the plan. And even under the new covenant, we Gentiles often lose sight of just how merciful God is. In fact, it's the prophet Isaiah who says in one place that judgment is God's alien work. Some renderings call it his strange work. Read it later in Isaiah 28 or Isaiah 30. Isaiah is the prophet who says, the Lord longs to be gracious to you. I know why Paul quotes Isaiah so much. Paul's a former Pharisee. Pharisees were Israeli patriots who made it their life intention to scorn Gentiles. But in Christ, Paul finally actually believed Isaiah for the first time. He had Isaiah memorized, but he finally believed it. It's why Paul could love Gentiles, us. It's why Paul would suffer for the Gentiles, us. It's why he traveled over land and sea at great risk to himself to get the gospel to our ancestors. And all the while, he never lost sight of his original people. About whom he said, chapter 11, verse 28, they are, Regarding the gospel, they're enemies of God for your sake because they oppose the gospel. Incredible sadness and anguish for him to write that. But as regards election 1128, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Now this takes us to the dreaming. Briefly to conclude. The biblical storyline as we have it in Romans chapters 9 through 11 is not a leveling. It's important to get this. It's not the Jews go down so the Gentiles can come up. No, it's an increase. Gentiles get in on the blessings God promised Abraham and both Jews and Gentiles rise and benefit And thereby God, through the gospel, brings about, he makes possible something many dream of, the unifying of diverse peoples. The early church struggled with this, and so does the late modern church. Remember the time uh, recorded in Galatians where Peter, uh, when certain Jews from Jerusalem would come, men from James, he would withdraw from eating with the Gentiles. He'd been eating with the Gentiles Preachers love to talk about Peter over there eating a ham sandwich, you know, and, and then the guys come from Jerusalem and he suddenly he's ritually pure and clean and he doesn't do that anymore. And what does Paul do when Paul confronts Peter about this? He says, when I saw he was not acting in keeping with the gospel. It didn't have to do anything about ham sandwiches or not. It wasn't about diet. It was about the, the, the unifying of diverse people in Christ. This is centered to the gospel, and it's, it's something the early church struggled with, so does the late modern church, but it's the dream of many in a fractured world. It's the dream of many in a fractured world, the, the, the unifying of diverse people. Many dream of that. Many work for that. We tire of division and rancor. Many advocate for unity, but they get such limited returns, limited results. Why? Because no one but God can really change the heart. The only change agent that really turns a person from themselves to to those outside of them is the gospel of Jesus Christ fully believed. And even if you struggle with all the implications of that, you will struggle well. You will keep moving in the direction that God points and aims you. And it's to others who are not like you. I'm not saying effort people employed, to unify diverse people is wasted energy. I'm saying it's limited without the Holy Spirit of God making that dream a reality. It's God's dream too, if we may put it that way, in the sense that dreams are what we really want and what God will achieve in the end. This praise that concludes the chapter here, verses 33 to 36 It's praise for God doing through the gospel what many consider to be just a dream and a pipe dream at that. How do you unify diverse people? You don't. You separate diverse people. You keep the culture separate. You keep the races separate, the ethnicity separate. They don't mix. The gospel places a a big fat anvil on that little house of cards and says, nothing is impossible with God. And the work that God is doing in the world is bringing people who are not the same together under one Lord, under one Savior, and teaching them how to love one another. And if you resist that, I question your belief. And I do based on what Scripture over and over and over again. I know you're churched, but do you get the heart of the gospel? And the heart of the gospel is not just a little transaction between you and Jesus, just Jesus and me, Jesus is just all right with me, et cetera, and so on. We'll even do the little dance. Get Colson to do the little Fortnite dance for you. A little gospel belief floss, you know. I'm so great to be in the Lord Jesus. And you're missing an element, a wide lens element. If, if there's not people in your life and you moving toward people who are not like you, but are nevertheless brought into fellowship with you in like mutual faith." This is the heart of the gospel. This is what the gospel looks like with human flesh on it. Human flesh isn't all the same. It looks different. God's dream, this praise that concludes this chapter, Paul says, God doing through the gospel, what many consider just a dream is an accomplishment with God. It's an achievement. It will happen. New Jerusalem will receive the wealth and the praise of all the nations because that's what God is doing. He's building a kingdom in which people who don't belong belong and, and where people who, who felt bypassed for so long are finally included. fully so. How come? God is rich in mercy. This is why the doctrine of mercy matters so deeply to us. He who is so over our heads doesn't need us, places himself within our hearts. A dream is what you want to see in reality. The praise here at the conclusion of this chapter is for a God who doesn't need anyone redeeming, doesn't need to occupy himself with reconciling the world, but that's exactly what he does. And that's the best thing you and I know. All things will finally and forever be shown to be from him, through him, and to him, even Satan, the great divider. I love the end of Romans, Romans 16, verse 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The dream is what you want to see in reality. The reality is God is overall and will bring all to his desired conclusions and you and I in Christ get to watch it unfold and we get to participate in it and we get to pray for it and support it and give to it, etc. and so on and fellowship with it. Whenever God is done with this world as it is, he will have suffered no losses, only gains. That is an incredible thing to say, but that's our God. That's what you're saying when you say, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for giving us this time to look in your word at things that are eternal that are worked out in time but are ultimately eternal lord we thank you for your inexhaustible depths and yet you have revealed yourself to us you've placed us in tensions and we won't know everything but the things that we do know lord we pray that they will root down deeper within us and the things that we're learning will penetrate not just our own hearts but the hearts of those around us and that we will be part of a great harvest of seeing people made in your image and likeness no matter that they're like us or not different from us in a hundred thousand ways and yet Lord no one is impossible for you and you are accomplishing a great work in this world and you've given us a, a front row full of popcorn seat to it and we thank you for that. May we not be found to be complaining or be oblivious or be isolating ourselves for uh, empty, hollow philosophies that do not save and do not help. Lord, bring us into the gospel again and again and again because it's where we intersect with your goodness, your values for the world, your kingdom coming. We pray this in Christ's name.